I'd take your advice one step further, Jason. And if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't know what numbers to put on my resume. Don't wait until you're worried about finding the next thing. Start now. Like you could, you should and can integrate that into your daily work as a product person. And, and I think the best, the best people I've worked with and that I've hired do. They know the impact of their stuff all the time. So if you haven't been doing it, start now. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Evanish, and this is the Practical Product Podcast. We aim to be the most actionable podcast on product management, teaching you exactly what to do about some of the biggest challenges in product management. And today we have a very special guest. We have my longtime friend, Willis Jackson. He is a longtime product manager and founder in Silicon Valley. He was the first PM at Grove Collaborative, which IPO'd earlier this year. He was also VP of product at Apto, and now he's founding his own company called Middle Mile. He's also one of my oldest friends. In tech, we met at a conference in his hometown of Kansas City, and he would not let me and the other people at the table we were at at the last night of a conference, he would not let us leave without having real Kansas City barbecue, which was not served at the conference. So he took us all out for barbecue the next day before taking us to the airport. And so obviously, I knew from that point forward, I had to, had to be friends with this guy because he was right. <laughs> the, the barbecue was much better where he took us. So I'm very excited to have Willis on the show today. We're going to be talking about how bad the product management interview processes are at all these companies and what you can do for either making your company better at it, or if you're about to head back out on the interview circuit, how to survive it. So Willis, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. I love that story, by the way. You tell it, you tell it great every time. <laughs> it's so unique. I can't say I have another friend who has, has so uniquely impacted me on the food front as you did basically ruining barbecue for me in a good way until I finally moved to Texas. And not to start a war on that, but, but I finally was able to taste barbecue that at least was in the same area code in taste and quality. That's right. Yeah. Cool. So today we want to talk about product management interviews. If you've been in tech for long, you know how frustrating they can be and how broken they are. So we want to talk about what, what we've seen. And, and Willis, as we were preparing before the show, was in particular showing me how much he knows about it as he has literally a stack, a good, good four or five inches thick of interview notes that he's had being on both sides of the table. And so he's seen a lot. Actually, I weighed it. It's three and a half pounds of paper. Of paper. You know, it's just a it's just a ream or two of paper. That's all, guys. Yeah, it's no big deal. <laughs> you know, one of the things that you brought up before we got started, specifically that I think sets the table for part of the reason why we have this problem, is the different types of product management and how they need different things, and maybe how that influences interviews. So maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think like I haven't stopped really to to lay out all the specifics, but in my mind, I always sort of think there's like four or five different high level approaches to product management. And one of the things that becomes pretty apparent when you try to interview for or interview people to hire for, for product management roles that like their background and their experience, like doesn't necessarily translate from one of the types to the other. So, you know, if, if you work somewhere where you're really focused on problem definition and problem ownership from a product perspective, and you apply somewhere where they expect the product manager to be the solution definer and designer to some level, you know, like they're going to ask different kinds of questions and you're not going to be, 
you're not going to be skilled or prepared for those necessarily just because you had a product job where you were successful. And so, you know, knowing it, knowing which one you're interviewing for from either side, I think is a huge piece of the equation. People don't actually advertise this very well in job posts. You like often find out midway through the process based on what they're asking you. So I think like that's, that's just the biggest thing is like knowing what they really want on a day-to-day basis from the PM, like where's your core responsibility lie? What's your, what's your big lever? It changes so much for how you approach everything. Okay. So you said there was like four or five different variants. So far I heard problem, someone who's really focused on kind of problem definition and, and prioritization of like which problem to solve. Then you said the second one was kind of someone who is more on the side of like expected to come up with solutions and kind of really kind of lead the charge in designing those. What are what are some of the other other types? I think of one as kind of like the drive-through product manager. You're like responsible for collecting the ideas that exist somewhere else in the organization and and bringing those to life. You know, the prioritization piece you might be involved with at some level, but it, it's not really your domain. And at the end of the day, you're not you're not really the decider on the priorities. None of us are at some level, but like you know, who starts the conversation and who ends it is pretty different in that case. I think the other one I've seen a lot of is you know, product management that is 80% project management. I mean, you, you know, I've talked about this many times. You're, you're really responsible for like keeping the glue together. And, you know, you might be involved in other parts of the, of what happens, but really like you're internally, your success is measured based on what you deliver from a, from a project perspective. Again, you're going to have like a really different skills map for that kind of individual. Rightly or wrongly, you know, we could talk about whether or not the organization should be doing that. But if you're trying to if you're trying to get that job and you come from a different archetype, you're you're going to be a square peg in a round hole pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and so when you think about like the interview process, then like I guess when you kind of run down those different roles, like how you should be measuring people, whether they're a good fit or the right hire, would be pretty dramatically different depending on which of those you're looking for. Yeah, totally. I mean, like at a high level, regardless of how, you know, regardless of which archetype you're looking for, you got to know the like the basics of, of interviewing and, and, you know, have the right stuff prepared ahead of time and know which, which things you want to test for. I, I personally favor a much more skills oriented approach. I think it's, it's more durable. It's things you can rely on. You're less likely to make a bad read when you interview folks for things that are skills oriented. But you got to know, like, what is what is a good answer? What is a bad answer? What is an acceptable answer? What are the scenarios I'm putting people through? And like, how does that map ultimately to what I'm going to ask them to do on the job? There is a lot of lines of questioning I've come across in product management land where I'm like, there's no way this has anything to do with what somebody does here. You know, nobody's asking a random mid-level PM at big company on the spot to like dream up a product strategy for the CEO to approve in the next 60 minutes. But you know, what you measure out of the types of types of questions you get, make sure that you have a good through line and that you have, you've done your homework. Most, most interviewing processes I think fail just because they aren't prepared. Yeah. I think that's one of the challenges is if you are a PM and you need to hire more PMs, generally that's because you're spread too thin. And it's like exactly at a time where you don't have a lot of time that you need to carve out time to actually like figure out what you really want and run a good process. And so I think it seems like one of the big challenges 
that that a lot that maybe causes a lot of these companies to run into this is literally them not being prepared because they're so pulled in other directions. So, like I guess, what would you recommend somebody do when at that moment, like, oh wow, I finally got approval to hire somebody. I really need to hire somebody, but I also really need to hire somebody. So, like, I I don't have the time. I would like to to you know sit down and craft the perfect process and just like you know devote all my time to just just thinking through this. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it depends on the situation you find yourself in. You know, if you're like a first time hiring manager, it's, it's different. But the reality for me, especially if I go back to like my experience at Grove, right? Like a lot of the prep work for what we were going to look for and how we were going to do it was done well in advance of us actually hiring anybody. Right. I knew when I got there that we were going to need to hire people sooner rather than later. They just raised a bunch of money and you know it was a 60 person organization plus or minus at the time all overall and so like you know i think on week two or three i was talking to my boss about like the philosophy of the type of pm we wanted like what kind of archetype are we like do we want and why and like is it you know is it beneficial to have everybody in one or do we want a couple from outside of the archetype that's the majority or like you know what is the composition of our team what do we care about and th- those discussions were not connected to hiring events at all the sooner you get on the same page with the people around you about what you hire for and why the like easier the process becomes because i think you're right like under no circumstances do you have time to do that stuff when you get there when you get you know th- then there's like depending on the type of organization again startups you know we needed to decide how we're going to divide our scopes like what are they what are they going to be how ultimately like eventually it's like oh, what are our reporting structure going to be like who's going to do this thing that thing the other thing so we also started having those conversations closer to when we knew we needed to hire but still beforehand uh, and then the the hiring piece like you it is if you're responsible for hiring people or making hiring decisions or or even like strong recommendations it's a it is a skill it's a hard skill it is a skill you can go learn about and it is a skill that practically every everywhere you work before you get to that role will let you practice to some degree mid-level pm at, at any you know given big company can more than likely raise their hand and say hey i want to help with interviewing and hiring and start working on that skill but most people treat that as like extra work that is a distraction from their regular work and not like a skill they can develop. So, you know, it depends on your approach. If you approach it, like I want to be good at this, then you'll have success when you get to the moment where it count, where you're like really counting on being good at it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think seeing around corners and anticipating things is definitely something in general you want to do for your product as a product manager. And as you can see, it, it also applies to the interview process that, yeah, you don't have time by the time you actually need the hire and are lobbying to say, hey, we need to finally pull the trigger and post for something. You need to have had those conversations already and you need to have done your own time to think through some of the things that you want if you know you're coming into a role where you're going to hire. So the thing I would say is that like, even though you know many of you listening right now may have a hiring freeze, I assume that your belief is that your company will get back to hiring at some point in the future, which means that now is actually a great time to very slowly, incrementally chip away at some of these things, whether it be kind of developing some of your skills, thinking about the archetype you want to do, or some of the hiring and interview tactics you think will help. Totally. Yeah. I think like 
it, it is an ideal time to pick up some books on interviewing techniques and like why they work and why they don't work. You know, there's a lot of, there, there is not perfect information. This isn't like a settled science, right? So it's one of those areas where I feel like doing a good survey of what's out there and seeing what makes sense to you and, and then trying to find ways to apply it is a thing that it's an easy way to move the needle for yourself when you don't have a ton of pressure for it. But you know, it's, this is one of it, like a lot of other things in product management, you want to be successful. You got to like pick up some of the skills before you get to the moment you need them or you're going to be under the gun and it's not going to work. Totally. So what are some of your, your books you've liked Willis that you, you found helped you learn how to, how to do this well? Yeah. You're probably gonna have to help me with a couple of these titles. One of them is the, the Laszlo Bach book. Work rules. Work rules. Yeah. One of the things I think is interesting about interviewing in particular is there are some good books out there. There are also just like a ton of good sort of long form essays that you can find online. You know, I read a lot of stuff off when I was trying to learn to hire off of like Inc's website and fortune and just other places there. If you avoid the sort of like content farmy stuff, there's a lot of good stuff. Another book I read was the, the A method. I don't necessarily use a lot of that stuff directly that they talk about something called the top grading interview where it's like very specific about the way you walk through people's previous background and experiences. I think that can be really useful at illuminating detail that is either left out intentionally or unintentionally that could be good or bad about a candidate. But the, the approach, the structured approach to the way you measure somebody and I think is like very fundamental to trying to understand how somebody's going to be successful in a product role that requires, you know, what, 10, 12, 15 different skills that are like potentially material to the outcome of this person. So I think it's hard to do that kind of an assessment or any kind of an assessment that doesn't drill down to like really structured stuff without wasting a ton of the candidate's time. So I think that one was pretty influential for me as well. Have you, uh, so one I, I really like is uh, who, which is, which is kind of a classic thing. A lot of people mention it, but it helps kind of. Yeah. I, I also read who this is the same thing. Uh, it's uh, the same time as the, the other books I mentioned and it, it was good. Yeah. The thing I would add with Laszlo Bach is the book is a beast. I have read it cover to cover, but it's like 400 plus pages probably. I mean, it's like you get a, the, the Amazon sends you a phone book. And, and so like, that's definitely one where you may want to skip around chapters more than read it directly. Cause a lot of it's about like being a people or HR leader, but like Willis said, the interview section is fantastic. Like I think some of the most powerful insights, like one that I remember from that book is they found that, um, you'll only need to have four people interview someone. Anyone above that is pretty extraneous and you don't actually get more valuable signal. So when you think about, for instance, structuring who and how your team interviews people, they have some really compelling data because of course, Google is extremely data-driven. They have some pretty compelling data on that, which allows you to kind of balance that like, well, how much time do I want my team to spend interviewing versus, versus like the impact it has, as well as understanding like, how good is anybody at interviewing? Like what's a good hit rate and like, what should you expect? And it turns out that like outside of a few outliers, like most people are pretty similar in their ability to evaluate and like, you're going to be wrong sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think uh, crucially, hopefully uh, the product manager out there, you know, appreciates having a rough idea of what success, like what your boundaries are for normal success and normal failure. And I think that that helped a ton too, because it you can, there is a perfectionist version of interviewing, which is excruciating. 
and you don't want to you don't want to get caught up in in that in the wrong spot and it's hard to it's hard to mesh the sort of mythos about hiring you know hiring the best people makes the biggest difference which is true but like what the definition of best is like you know don't you don't want to be too precious about it and cause it to to tank your hiring process for you yeah the, all those all those books i think help a ton is your product team delivering the way you need them to are you shipping great product improvements at the frequency and quality you hoped Becoming a great product manager does not happen by accident. It takes a lot of learning along with trial and error. And when you have product managers reporting to you, they need your guidance, even as the demands of running your company only grow. Unfortunately, things like coaching and teaching don't tend to fit on a founder or C-level executive's busy schedule like yours, even if you know your team members need it. Fortunately, I've been a founder and an early stage product leader for over 12 years. During that time, I've mentored and coached dozens of product managers. I can fill in the gaps you wish you had time for and help diagnose and fix the most common problems that plague underperforming product managers and teams. If you wanna see if I can help you and your product team's challenges, go to becustomerdriven.com and sign up for a free call to discuss your needs and how I can help you. Again, that's becustomerdriven.com. Another thing I wanted to talk about, I know this is something that I think you and I have had, had many a conversation about the frustration of is, is just how many companies have like weird or poorly thought out hypotheticals as part of their product management interview process. So whether, whether they're asking you about like how to make a smart refrigerator when they're like a software company, or they are asking you about how many ping pong balls are on a school bus or you know, the total number of websites on the entire internet. Like there's all these like puzzles that people can use that like the excuse seems to be that it's about, about helping people like understand that you're a good thinker or something. I'm not really sure, but like a lot of companies seem to think that like, you know, PMs need to be smart. So I should ask them like, like mind puzzles and stuff. So I'm curious, like your, your thoughts on that, maybe what you've seen on both sides of the table. One of the things that I think is like a starting point for thinking about this space for me is, you know, when we talk about like customer development and I and like doing good firsthand user or potential user, potential customer interviews, like one of my top rules is don't ask hypotheticals because you ask, ask somebody to imagine themselves in a scenario and then ask them to tell you what they would do in that made up scenario, like carries no real risk for them. Right. And so you get bad data. The, I think the same thing is like fundamentally true in interviewing. You like put people into like really hypothetical situations. Like the only thing you're testing for at the end of the day is like whether or not they're good at dealing with hypothetical situations. But what I want them to be good at is dealing with real situations. And like that is the thing that I think like that's my schism with this approach did like begins there. I think that there is a lot of like meaningful, I, I agree. You should want to hire the smartest people possible. The job's hard. Like smart to me, smart means like able to quickly learn and figure out what matters. And, and then to like be able to drill into the, that stuff and ignore the things that don't. And like, I want people who can do that. I don't necessarily need them to be able to do that in five minutes, in 30 minutes and an hour. I need them to be able to do it in the time frame that is relevant to the job. And that's often like in the scale of weeks or months. 
And so I think that the, the test method like optimizes for the wrong thing. It optimizes for people who are good test takers and people who excessively prepare for tests. The other thing I'll say about this is the notion that like, you know, like the refrigerator one always gets me because I actually, I have a deep appreciation for the history of product management, like product lifecycle management, like things you can learn about it. I like got into product management because a friend of mine like moved to a product role in a, a, a company early in my career that was in a, in a, in a that product was in a cash cow, you know, the, the like final lifestyle stage of the life cycle. And I, I was like, what, how do you do this? How, how do like, how do you make decisions? And it was just a really interesting space that said, I don't find that comes up in any conversations I have with other product people or execs anywhere. So asking how somebody would approach a non-software product is like, the most left turn thing I can imagine out of people's interview processes compared to what they think about or talk about. And so I, I like, it's just people are, I think unintentionally injecting noise into their own interviewing as an assessment process at, at least. And at, and at worst, they're like selecting for the wrong characteristics. And I can stand on the soapbox forever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the number the number of companies that I've interviewed at or people that have coached have been like on the job hunt. But like, the stuff they've been asked is just like it just makes you facepalm because you're like, this isn't helping you evaluate people. Like this isn't this isn't actually moving the needle on what to do, and yet you're disqualifying certain candidates based on whether you think like their their answer to something that isn't like the work you're going to be hired to do. It's like. You've ever seen the meme on Twitter about about engineering hiring? It's very similar where with the engineering hiring, it's like, hey, help us solve this really complex algorithm and like map out this you know stru- structure of code on a whiteboard. And then it's like, congratulations, you have the job. You're going to edit HTML and CSS on this one page and change some button colors. And it's like... How, like so they spent all this time brushing up so they could pass your interview. And then it's like nothing like the job. What did... What did you actually learn? You you learned whether someone was, like you said, was a good test taker. And that is not the goal. In fact, in some ways, if someone is too good at like being a quote unquote test taker, they may not be able to do the independent thinking you need. If you're looking for someone who can, you know, go out and define a problem and come up with like a new green space opportunity for like a new product line for your company or, or solve a really sticky intractable problem on, you know, one of the products that you have. Well, like you need an, you need a creative and innovative thinker, not someone who thinks about how they can, you know, ace the PM interview. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I'll, I'll go one step further. You like, I need, oftentimes I'm looking for like, I need somebody who can be creative and innovative about telling the rest of us we're wrong. Like, I mean, like that to me, that's what smart, that's where I, that's where I get smart really pays off when we think we were correct, but like somebody's getting the right information. They're thinking about the problem space creatively. They're coming up with something, you know, that we didn't think about. And they're saying like, Hey, wait a minute, what about this? And it's like, Oh yeah, that works. Like that's, I think like to the, to the individual contributor PM, like that is, that's a thing you want in the dynamic. And yeah, like te- testing for like complex algorithm to, to, you know, and whether, and then giving somebody the job to edit CSS is, is hilarious. That said, I will say I have seen some people do these kinds of interviews relatively well. And I think one of the issues is they're, they're often the interview style is like intentionally blue sky, but like also it, 
if you give somebody like next to nothing to tether to, you're basically just asking it. You know, it's like dropping somebody off at a random point in the universe and saying like, well, will you end up climbing, you know, like to this, this particular mountain on earth? It's like maybe, but only if they knew that's where they were going already. But I've seen people do this interview, these kind of interviews where they let you talk around something, but the moment they sense that you've mentioned something that they think is the direction they want to get the interview moving in, they will immediately give you feedback and tell you to scope in on that thing. Like if you find yourself in an organization where this is like some baked in required part of the process, my like advice wholeheartedly is like be an active participant with the, the candidate don't let them wander around in the dark when they say something that is the direction you want to go in, tell them to go in that direction. And it not only produces like better results, it's also like a way better candidate experience. Like the, like I've, I've trialed doing these interviews a couple of times, like the, and the feedback you get from the candidate is like, they have no earthly idea if they did well or not. Right. And it's like, that's not, it shouldn't, it shouldn't work that way. Like you should know if you've done well. Oh yeah. That, paying attention. that is the number one frustration is like someone will, will I'll, I'll talk to a friend and they'll be like, yeah, I did this thing. I had like, I have no idea. And then if they get rejected, like most companies, you know, as a, as a CYA related to legal issues are afraid to give feedback. So you get this black box of like, so this hypothetical thing that has nothing to do with the product we're going to work on. I got no feedback from the interviewer in the moment. And I got rejected and I learned like I learned nothing and I have no idea why it didn't work out like that. That is just it's it's a to me like a, a, a red mark on product management as an industry that like people can walk away from that. Like if you bomb an interview one, you should feel kind of feel like you did. And it, it's a shame that you can't get even like rudimentary feedback then when something doesn't doesn't work out. But when you combine all those, it's just like, how is some, how is some, somebody supposed to get better, even if they want to work hard when it's that much of a black box? Exactly. It's well, yeah. And I, I think that it is what I, what I hope, it, it, you know, if you're someone listening to this, who runs these kind of interviews, what I hope you realize is like the people who are interviewing there, they like, they have a, like, they have a worse opinion of the company coming through that right? Potentially a worse opinion of you. <laughs> and like product management is a, there are a lot of product managers, but it's not the big, it's not the like, I still remember the people who did these interviews well when I went through them. And I, so you can stand out really easily as somebody who knows their stuff by like doing these interviews well and like not being, you know, a passenger on their journey as they wander through the darkness, but actually like being a facilitator to something that's intentionally open-ended. Oh yeah. I think that's actually a really important note to think through is the fact that like a good product manager is somebody who networks a lot like inside a company and those same people network a lot often outside of a company and so like i know i'm part of at least three product management groups on slack in addition to all the people that i've organically met in my career like willis who i'll keep in touch with and talk about sticky product problems and stuff like that and so especially in a world where like frankly a lot of pms are extroverts and even the introverts connect you know on slack and things like that word definitely can travel pretty fast like i remember living in new york and hearing all about a certain company who remained nameless who 
ran just an awful product management process to the point where it was literally a running joke at some of the meetups. They're like, oh, you interviewed there? Ha ha. Everybody, everybody does that. No one works there. And it's like, <laughs> you don't want, like, you don't want that to be your reputation. Cause guess what? Those people are also friends with engineers. Like, like it just will kill your entire product organization. If, if it, if word gets out that like people just find it to be a frustrating, confusing, or, or just not a good experience going through your interview process. And one of the biggest ways to burn people other than just basic things like not following up or ghosting people or things like that is having these black block steps in your interview process where people don't understand what they were evaluated on, maybe don't think it was a fair evaluation and then don't have any idea why maybe they didn't move on. Yeah, absolutely. There are a number of companies that I have a hard time even spending time interviewing people who have worked there when they apply for jobs because they, their people have so consistently bombed. And so I, th- like, I think that the fil- that filter actually that you're mentioning goes both ways, right? Like the people who don't go through and have a bad experience end up with issues. And it, but if you also do make it through and you like interview at other places that are looking for different stuff, you're going to like potentially have issues. It's, I don't understand the reasons companies do this. I, I've like tried to find how some of these interviews became canon in the San Francisco and the Valley. And it's like, I don't, it, it's almost untraceable. Like this stuff is just here and everybody's doing it. And I, w- I honestly wish people would just stop. So, so I have a fun story on that front. There, there's a certain company where there's one of the product leaders wrote a book on how to do product, product interviewing and how to, how to nail it as somebody trying to get a job. And what's interesting is over time, they don't even follow what's in the book. And, right. and, and the reason they don't is because they've hired in some people who go and look at the interview process and say, well, what about, we, we should try this. And they add like one little thing. And over time, it warps it because you've hired these other people who want to bring one thing from their last job. And it starts out as just like one thing you want to change. And next thing you know, you pick your head up and you know, what used to be a gold standard kind of interview process now has some of these weird hypotheticals and, and, and things like that, that are like, wait, (laughs) this is against the original principles, but it's, it's warped and evolved because different people brought in these other elements over time or lobbied for this one little change that adds up. Totally. Yeah. It's, if you're not careful, there's a lot of stuff like that out there. The Spotify tribes model, it reminds me of that as well, where they've said, that was a theory. We tried it and it didn't really work. We do this other stuff instead now, but everybody's still following the original thing. Yeah, that's the that's the funniest thing. And this is something I think in general happens on the internet a lot is like people will blog about something that's working at their company and you have to be careful to see actually if like they're still doing it. Yeah, make them show you their stack of notes. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, or, or you know, uh, when they change, do they write the mea culpa post? Like, you know, I have to give, for instance, Buffer a lot of credit. They've done a lot of things in public as a company. And that includes admitting when like, they got rid of managers for a minute. And so I can tell you when I was running Lighthouse and that happened, I was like super tempted to write a blog post being like, this is going to fail and here's why. But I'll be honest, I just didn't like, I liked Joel. I liked Leo. I didn't want to write a post taking a dump on them. And I have to give them a huge bunch of credit because a year later, they lost one of their most senior best engineers because of it. And they wrote a huge mea culpa about like, Hey, actually what we learned is managers are important. 
And here's why, and here's what we're going to do differently. A lot of companies will write that first post about like how they thought something was a great idea and how like results early on are great. We have way fewer meetings. And then the results come out and they just like very quietly, they may or may not even take down the blog post, but they definitely don't write the sequel or like, we were wrong about that. And so a lot of things can become you know, canonized and, and believed to be this great idea. And no one realizes that even the company that posted doesn't do that anymore. So you have to be a little bit careful on that. But that's why, like, for instance, some of the books we talked about are so great because they did the research. It's like the beauty of Google is that they had 50 to 100,000 employees with a very nerdy engineering-driven culture. And so they measured everything. And when you do something like hundreds of thousands of times, it's, it's actually st- statistically significant. Which means that they actually would approve, oh, this is actually a really bad idea. We shouldn't do that. We should do this instead. And so like you want to be on the lookout for that. I'm going to see if I can dig out some of the data come out that shows like there is no correlation between people being able to answer brain teasers and actually being able to do the job well. In fact, the only thing it does is boost the ego of the interviewer. And so like, I'll I'll try and dig out the link to that old article. But I always find it interesting because I literally had an interview with a company once and they were asking me about like a brain teaser. And I was like, oh, did you know that like they've statistically proven the brain teasers aren't predictive? (laughs) And like, I don't recommend you do this. This could have gone really badly for me. But ironically, I put the, the, the CEO I was interviewing with on their heels and I actually moved forward. I didn't end up working with that company. So don't think you can guess who it was. But like, I, I, I advanced to the next step in the interview because I actually convinced them of the fact that it, like, it wasn't representative. So like, you shouldn't ask me this. What, what is the actual underlying question you want to evaluate me on? And we moved on past that and actually got, had a really great discussion. But like, the initial brain teaser was absolutely ridiculous. And I, wasn't, like, I was like, I am in no, I'm in no mental state to be able to actually answer this. So instead, I'm going to hit him with the data and be like, hey, I will literally send you the study afterwards. I know, I know that this is like not representative. What do you actually want to learn from me in this initial interview? And I don't think that will work in all cases, but in that case, I did actually earn the person's respect and move forward. But there is some interesting data on, on that, a number of other interview tactics that just don't work the way that maybe people thought they did or do just because it's what they've always done. And so you want to, you want to try not to fall into some of those potholes. Yeah, totally. I, I like advice to interviewees. If you can politely redirect that you, th- you think somebody's you know, like in an interview is like asking things that aren't really material. Like if you can find a way to politely redirect onto the like that broader subject and, and ask, what do you really want to know about me? Like, I think if that doesn't work out, then like that's a good signal. And if it does work out, that's a good signal. And like, you know, to the interviewer, if anybody's like, if, if I'm learning something from an interviewee and in, in like the interview and they're like pushing my knowledge, I welcome that because I want it. It's a skill I want to see on the job. Yeah. And I think this comes down to also a reminder of like thinking about your personal values and what you actually want in a job because uh, an interview should actually be a two-way conversation where you're actually trying to figure out, do I want to work at this company or not? You know, you're going to spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week sometimes with all the people at this company and dealing with whatever politics and circumstances and structure they have. And so you want to be thinking about whether you want to work at this company just as much as they want to think about if they want to hire you. And so, you know, when you bring that perspective, realize that sometimes if something doesn't work out, you've actually you've saved yourself a lot of trouble, whether it be a lot more work to get through more stages in the interview 
or you know, you take the job and then find out, oof, I don't like how they do things here. I think as an interviewer, like one of the most valuable questions, honestly, is like, what questions do you have for me? Like, I, I want to know that you're engaged and you're trying to evaluate us. And oftentimes the answer is none because they ask the questions during the interview, but like, yeah, you engage with what they're talking about. You know, ask how they would answer that question after you give your answer. Like, you know, like if you, if it doesn't feel right or it doesn't feel connected, like, you know, explore it. Again, I think this goes back to the types of archetypes that product roles have. But if you're interviewing for the ones that you and I have a strong affiliation for, like they're going to value that you're engaged more than just following the steps. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing is you have to think about not just what is the which of the different types of product management does this company do? You have to think about which kinds you enjoy. You know, I, I would say that if I was going out for a product management gig right now, if 80% of the job is project management, I don't want to work there. Like that's a, hey, I'm glad you know what you want, but that's not me. And, and even to some extent, if the company really likes PMs who come up with solutions, it's like, I'm not good at that either. Like, like I want to I want to sit down with a designer and engineer and come up with it together. And if that's not part of their process and they expect me to just hand a spec to design and they'll paint by numbers and then engineers just do what they're told. One, there are absolutely people out there that that's the kind of job they want. They just want to be, you know, they just want to be told what to do. But, but two, if you are expected to come up with that, you know, that comes at the expense of having time to do things like build relationships with customers and be cross-functional. Like you have to realize as well that like you need to know what your puzzle piece shape is as much as understanding whether your puzzle piece fits into the company that you want to go to. Yeah. The, you, you will make a better decision about where to work, the better you know yourself. As a, as a founder, I know that I don't like to be told what to do. And that's <laughs> always been a, I like, and I've also never met a responsibility I didn't want to own. <laughs> the, so, you know, like if I, same thing, if I went into like a very, you know, these projects are set externally, the, like the product team like figures out ways to make them work. I just, I would be miserable. And knowing that, and like and looking for it in the interview process is is key like because again people don't really advertise these things in the way that you would expect you know so it, it's it's incumbent on you as the interviewee to to figure it out yes yes and on, on the on the flip side if you're the person hiring like again this is why you want to start early like what is your style of product management and what kinds of pms do you want on you know we're working on your teams and how will they interact with you know not just their engineers and designers, but also other departments, like thinking through what that looks like is a really, really important step before you ever write a job description, before you ever post an opening and before you ever start the interview process itself, that is like absolutely foundational. And it's something you can be thinking about from literally the first day you you're at a company, you, you can start laying the groundwork for that and you can do it very incrementally, but you need to, you, you need and want to do it so that you can filter for the right people you'll eventually want to hire. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Let's talk about another another thing that I think comes up a lot in product management. And it's, it, there's an interesting world to straddle and it's assignments. So on the one hand, you can give someone an assignment. And if you make it like a complete hypothetical, I've found that you know companies will feel a little more comfortable putting it on your plate because they feel like it's not really free work because like they can't use it. You know, they're not, they're not gonna go out and do X, Y, and Z because they're a company that is ABC. Then on the other hand, I've also seen companies that are very aggressive where, you know, like I know at Square, they've done things where like, you know, they're having you do something that's basically like the job they have. And so they literally want you to like go out and talk to a bunch of restaurants or, you know, scope something out. So at that point, then it is kind of like doing free work. So I'm curious, 
Willis, what have you seen that you've liked or not liked specific to assignments? And you know, how do you think about what kind of time commitment being asked of a candidate if you do give them an assignment? This is one of the things that I've, I've really changed my opinion on over the years. I used to think these were nonsense. I didn't use them. At Grove, the folks made me do one. I was really into it, them as a company. So I said yes, and I did it. And then as I started to use theirs and modify it a little bit and apply some of the first principles that I have about hiring into it, I, I found that it really increased the quality of read we got. Not very many people got disqualified by this thing for me. But in fact, I think maybe single digits over you know, a three and a half year period. However, I got very good, a very good idea how they were going to perform in the writing part of their job when they got on the job. And it gave me a very strong read that takes, I think, honestly, like maybe six to eight weeks on the job, monitoring somebody and working with them to understand where they're going to be weak and, and strong and where they might need help and support to be successful. And to me, that's where the value really dials in. It tells me, do they bring their own structured thinking to the process? And like, can they communicate well in writing, which is crucial to the work, right? And so it's a it's a quality barrier for, for making sure that like the, they're hitting a basic standard. The way I, I've approached it is put, I, I like lean very far into doing something that's relevant to the company. However, I put it so far out from where we are that it's not really, it's like, you're not doing spec work. You're not doing something I can turn around and integrate into my strategy six months from now. And I think the reason I do that is because it's relevant. It, it continues a thread of thinking they've had about our interactions. They've been thinking about our space, our company. I don't expect that, like I'm not grading on expertise or how well you know this thing or that thing. I'm just trying to give you something that seems relevant to work on. So it doesn't feel like a big old blue sky exercise again. Right. And, and, and I'm also extremely clear about the measure, like the assessment criteria, I list them out and like, and then on the back end, I have a doc that says, here's how you evaluate point one, you know, here's good, bad and, and acceptable point two, good, bad, acceptable. So that there's not a ton of ambiguity. And, and I tell people to limit it. If you can do these four things acceptable, like that's, that's the bar. You're not here to impress me. You're here to do, give me information. Can you maybe give a little bit of an example of like, what were you like? So Grove Collaborative is essentially a subscription kind of healthy organic products, like, like soaps and cleaners and stuff like that, that delivered straight to somebody's door. So like, will like, what will be an example of like a assignment that you would give PMs when you were hiring there? I'd have to look to get all the details exactly right. But we would talk, you know, uh, Grove developed some of their own physical products alongside products that we were just a retailer for. And the the sort of way you approach the product management, you know, online shopping experience inside of a context of Grove for a product we are launching that we just developed ourselves is a pretty relevant space. The, you know, so... One of the scenarios, there were two scenarios in our test. One of the scenarios was, you know, hey, this product launch that is totally not really super related to Grove. I think it was like shoes or something that it's happening and you need to have a plan for how you're going to coordinate with folks. 
across the organization. This is not, you know, like this is just sending, setting the table really for scenario two, which if I remember correctly was something along the lines of like, it's gone poorly <laughs> and you have, you know, found out it very nearly the last minute that this thing is not working and the CEO, you know, has, a, you know, these opinions about what's going on. How do you respond? And the, within the structure of the, th- the answer you just gave, what modifications are you going to make and how do you approach thinking these things through and what do you give people? And these are, it's also worth noting too, that we, we never ask people to present these. I think, <laughs> I think that's also a pretty big mistake because again, it's very unlike something you would actually present at work where you would, you, you would put the extra hours in to make sure it's as good as it can be. And I don't want you to do that. Yeah, I've seen I've seen a lot of that where like it turns into a presentation at which point you're like, wait a second, am I being graded on like how pretty my my, my deck is? Am I being graded on my presentation skills? Or am I being graded on the content and the material in it? Like it certainly that certainly can open a lot of can of worms on like feeling like you're not sure what you're being graded on and how much time you then need to put into it to to, you know, get that advance. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, when and you go back to like the, some of the things we mentioned earlier too, which is like, is this really a part of the job? Like, are you going to be giving a lot of executive presentations in this role? You know, if, you, if you're hiring like a VP of product, like you should have them come in and give a presentation a hundred percent. They have to do that as a part of their job. Like they need to convince other people with a deck and, and a story, but for a mid-level PM, it's not necessary. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, what's interesting too is like, you know, one of the things I, I would differentiate Willis's assignment versus some of, the, some of the many others I've seen and heard about is that in Willis's assignment, he's talking about a real scenario and asking you to like lay out what you do about it. And that's going to reveal a lot about not just like Willis talked about with their, their writing skills and their communication skills. It's also going to show their thinking process and like, how they would approach something like can they, can they fathom something not working? Okay, what do they do? And they can't really hide from that, which is which is really really powerful, but also puts like it puts borders on it. Like I think we can all imagine doing that assignment, and you can also imagine how like it would only take you a couple of hours. Like this is not something you're going to feel like I'm going to spend 20 hours on it. And I have to find time outside of my other job I have or the th- other companies I'm talking to or whatever else you're doing with your life. Like you won't feel like you need to stop everything, but like you have to give a presentation that includes like executives in the audience. Like all of a sudden the bar raises so much higher and like the time commitment, like, I mean, it's laughable. Some of the assignments I've seen where like they say, oh yeah, spend no more than two hours on this. And then they give you something that's clearly a two day project. Yeah. And a full-time two days of project. Exactly. Exactly. And so you have to be careful. Like I think as a company, do not create assignments that you know, like, look, one of the things to keep in mind is like, if you know you have a superpower in a certain area, do not expect everybody else to be able to do something as quickly as you can do it because you've been doing it for 10 years. Like you have to, you have to realize that there's a gap there unless you literally think that people have to have the exact same superpower as you in order, in order to succeed at the job. And then you also still need to be careful that they may not have the superpower. They just spent like three days on it and they will never have three uninterrupted days at your company to do the same thing. So be very careful on that. Like saying put a time limit on something does not mean anybody will actually listen to it. And you can very easily run into the case 
where someone will spend way more than that. And then they'll, they'll stand out for the wrong reasons because they'll never have a chance to put that much time into similar work at your company. And so keeping the scope small on it and literally putting in a structure like Willis talks about here, they're not doing a deck, they're writing out what their thoughts are and what they're going to do. Like that keeps, that keeps it from people doing things that will falsely make them stand out because they spent way more time than all the other candidates or, or, or something like that. Like you just create, you don't create the incentive for those sorts of things to happen by, by not having good control of the scope of these kinds of things. I'll go one step further. And I think like the, the way to conduct these is, is really back to front is like starting with your assessment criteria, then going you know, like going backwards and saying like, okay, what do I, what do I, what am I expecting to get? Right. And then like, and then knowing, okay, I don't want people to spend a ton of time on it. Like making sure like that's expensive. I've, I've, our, our doc always said, you can basically give us any, any format that you're comfortable with. You can give us a deck, you can give us a roadmap with comments. You can give us a, a Google doc. Like you can take pictures of stuff that you wrote on napkins. I don't care. It doesn't matter. As long as it accomplishes these communication and, and like, and thinking objectives that we've listed out and you feel good about it. I feel good about it. And the, the like sort of <laughs> visual quality, if you will, of things that I've gotten as submissions to these over the years have varied very widely. But it, it, then if you keep working backwards to make sure that it's not something that's giving you that false read that you're talking about, where you're selecting for the wrong criteria, it's it actually turns out to be really, really not that big of a deal for the candidate. There are some other things that are like little tips you can do, you know, like don't give it to people and give them a week to work on. Yeah. <laughs> right. If they're like, oh, I can work on it on Saturday. It's great. Great. I'll send it to you on Friday. If they say like, oh, you know, I'm going to be out of town. I'll start it here. And then I'll like, and they end up working, like they end up having it for like five days. I send them a note midway through and just say like, hey, how much time have you spent on it so far? Like, and if they, if they're like, oh, you know, it's a lot. Like, I'm like, okay, do you want to just send it to me? And I can tell you if you should work on it some more. Like, since you said you were going to like, the point here is to like clear a bar, not to like figure out how good you are. Right. And so like, there are ways you can help the candidate to get that point when a lot of other things that are out there tell you to like do the most amazing job you possibly can. Yeah. I think, and I think that's a good point is keeping in mind. That's a piece of calibration. I think companies sometimes miss is you have your own process. And so for instance, you may have a candidate who gets to like step three and you're ready to give them the assignment, but like other candidates are like a little behind. You haven't really filled the pipeline yet. So you're like, okay, well here's the assignment, but like, we're not going to be able to touch base with you for two weeks. Like, what do you think the odds are that that candidate isn't going to spend like a lot of that two weeks trying to perfect it when meanwhile, maybe another candidate is like rushed through the process to try to catch up. And now they have a day like, like Willis is saying there, one of the best things you can do is level the playing field by being like, Hey, we just want you to spend like one evening on this, no more, or like a couple hours. So like, you know, when are you going to work on it? Cool. All right. I'm going to send it to you on this day, send, send, send it back on like the Monday after that. Cool. Like that way you're giving people the same amount of like real time as much as like, oh, I only want you to spend X time on it. Well, don't give someone two, don't give someone two weeks between your step in the interview process for something you told them should only take them an hour or two of work. Yeah, exactly. Also, I'll, I'll say this too is I, I, the hour or two thing I think is the more, that's where I started with these. I'm now, I now tell people two to four partially because and I think this is maybe a, a place I could improve the process. I wanted to make it 
So I didn't have to make a different assignment for people who are applying for an associate PM role and people who are applying for a senior PM role. <laughs> so the writing these writing these does take some time, right? Because you kind of have you have to like think through what you're doing and then you have to kind of generate it in your head or maybe even do a draft yourself to see how it works. And so I, I've given like a little bit more time because I know that like a lot of the more junior folks are going to have to go find a framework that they use to communicate this rather than use one they've used before. And so I, I think like it's fair to say like, hey, this might take you longer, but I expect it to take less time if you have a lot of experience. Are you a self-taught product manager? Do you feel like there's gaps in your skills holding you back? Are you comfortable teaching others how you do product management? The fact is no one learns product management in school. You have to learn by cobbling together resources, reading books and blog posts, seeking out mentors, and learning on the job through trial and error. I've been there. I was a self-taught PM too, and I was lucky to learn from some of the best product minds in Silicon Valley. Now I want to teach you everything I've learned. To do that, I've written blog posts, shared knowledge on these podcasts with great guests, and now I'm doing a limited number of coaching and consulting engagements. If you're looking to level up as a product leader and want to tune up you and your product team skills, then go to becustomerdriven.com and sign up for a free call to discuss your needs and how I may be able to help you. Again, go to becustomerdriven.com. One of the things I'm curious about, how do you feel in the interview about talking about anything specifically your company is doing right now? So like challenges, what like the job, like, hey, you're going to be taking over Team X. Team X right now is focused on on X and Y, or like we're thinking about heading in this direction. Like how much, how much, like where do you, where do you sit on the fence of like, we need to be very specific to like literally what the job is for versus like, you know, hey, we're just thinking about a consistent color and standard of what we're what we're hiring. So all PMs clear a certain bar. That's actually kind of a tough question. It's, I think, I mean, I could see both of them, to be honest. And I think there are times where I've leaned more towards one versus the other. Fundamentally, I think it depends on whether or not you need a missionary or a mercenary. Right. Like if you have a discrete problem that you like you need to be fixed and that you expect to go away once it is fixed, talk about that problem. Or you're gonna potentially hire somebody who can't fix it. Right. And like that defeats the whole purpose of the interviewing process. You might as well just read a resume and randomly pick someone. So like if you're hiring someone to fix like a major fraud issue on your platform, then you maybe want to talk very specifically about people's experience on that. That's what you mean? Potentially, but it also could be in a different domain too, right? Like sure. there's... Yeah, 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 I'm just thinking about what would be an example of like a very defined problem where you want to be sure somebody's like maybe has some useful experience there or can think through the problem the right way. Yeah, uh, like, you know, in a startup context, it would be like, hey, if if my fraud number doesn't hit X by, you know, like such and such date, we're going to have a hard time raising our next friend. It's like, I got to find, like, I have to find somebody who can do that without destroying the whole, the whole product and the whole company in the process, right? Like I need, I need to still be able to grow after that, but I need this problem to be solved. Another version of it, I've seen like teams that are just like super dysfunctional for whatever reason, you know, right, wrong or indifferent. Like you just realize that this team cannot work together well and you like need somebody in there who can get the team working together. Like, will that person potentially be valuable? and? team or in other roles later yeah should you like 
sacrifice all of the things you believe about the product people you should hire in order to get that person? No. But like, should you be talking about team cohesion and like that that's a problem in the interview? Absolutely. You will get somebody who can help with that problem a lot more readily if you talk about it than if you don't. And, and to be honest, as a candidate and in an interviewee, like you want, there's two things I always want from people when I've, you know, through the various IC roles and even, you know, the more senior roles I've, I've interviewed for, it's like, tell me why you need me and tell me like why I should believe in this organization. Like what's the vision for my role and what's the vision for this company? And if I think of this as stuff as just saying like, Hey, like, here's the problem, but also here's the vision for like what I want you to accomplish in this role. Like this team doesn't work or fraud is a disaster or whatever it is. I don't see how you lose giving that information out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, this comes back to remember if you're interviewing for a job, you need to interview them as well and decide if it's a fit. And I think that like one of the challenges in product management is that like, as much as there are tactics and processes that, you know, you can use and that often translate across jobs, every company is not the same and what they believe product management is, is different. You know, for instance, Airbnb cares a lot about design. Google cares a lot about engineering. Like a PM is unlikely to be successful at both of those companies. Like you're either going to be a good enough design focused person to fit in an Airbnb or you're technical enough to earn respect at Google. But like, unless you're joining like a special infrastructure ops team at Airbnb, chances are you're not going to be a fit at both of those and reflecting on like what flavor of product management you are and what kinds of companies may reward and reflect that. A lot of times, job descriptions are just like everybody copies and pastes from each other. And so like you can't read the job description and know whether they like your flavor necessarily. Guilty as charged. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've certainly, I've certainly, I, I've certainly copy and pasted a fair bit of <laughs> job descriptions. Right. Exactly. I mean, I, I've done it, I've done it too. And then adapted it to be, be, you know, something that, that fit better. And, and, and so knowing that that's the case, you can't just count on like what external information you have telling you what's actually, what's what the actual style of product management is. So you need to, you need to be asking when you get into the interview process and you're talking to another PM that's there, or if you network to someone who's there on the side, like find out from them, like what, what is valued in product managers? And like, are those the things that I enjoy doing or that I think my greatest skills are? If they're not, then, you know, maybe you need to look at another company. If they are, then you need to think about like, how can I make sure those things are apparent in my interview process? Yeah, I, I, I think I, I think it's worthwhile as somebody who's gotten themselves into a role before that wasn't, you know, an ideal fit, I think, in the long term, the it's good to have a, a list of criteria in your head of what these things are. What for me, it's philosophy match, first and foremost, like, does this person think the things that are important that I think are important? Or do they like, are they willing to believe it, you know, in an executive role? But there's a bunch of other things. It's like, which, which department or team in the company like really leads the organization is the marketing team is the product team is the engineering team like and why right the the marketing led organization and engineering led organization are like you're saying are functionally executed differently and and the way and who you relate to is really different but you know how how is the product manager measured how are they determined that they're successful or unsuccessful here and a lot of those questions can be really loose so like bring some stuff I always suggest bring some artifacts. Like I've been carrying around the intercom, like product manager rubric that they posted like seven years ago, eight years ago. I like, you know, send that to somebody and be like, is this like, what do you have that says somebody's good or bad? And 
the more you sort of like poke at those things and as, as a candidate, the more likely you are to find someplace that, that is an environment where you fit. All right. So another thing that I think is a, a big topic uh, is resumes. And I think for product managers in particular, your resume is like very important what you do and do not convey in it. And what I, what I see a lot in the not good resumes is a set of bullet points at different jobs where your accomplishments is literally just past tense verbs of things you did. So you held scrum meetings, you ran agile processes, you shipped feature X and feature Y. If that's all your resume says, it doesn't really tell the company a lot about your results. So one of the tips I always give to PMs, if they're getting antsy at a current job, or they're worried about their company is going to give them the ax because of downsizing or something like that, is to go into the company analytics and find out how did your projects go? Which of your projects were big wins? Which of them were not? Like You can still to this day go look at my LinkedIn. And if you go all the way back to my time as PM at Kissmetrics, you can see I have numbers for everything. It helped we were a web analytics company. So we had everything instrumented well, but I'm able to go back and look and I could see every single feature we launched, how they performed. And I have the highlight reel of like improve this by X percent, improve Y by Y percent, you know, took us from nothing to, you know, dozens of customers buying this upsell feature that then was that I taught sales how to sell it. Like you want to have all of these things that are numerically driven to prove what you can, what you can do. And that will make you stand out. So maybe Willis, you can talk a little bit about kind of how you look at resumes, how you think about crafting your own resume and, and what are, what are things that maybe are causing people not never even to get past resume submission? Yeah. I, I, I I can say like the same thing. If you look at my, my LinkedIn, it's just littered with numbers. To, to be honest, if you can't, I'd take your advice one step further, Jason. And if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't know what numbers to put on my resume. Don't wait until you're worried about finding the next thing. Start now. Like you could, you should and can integrate that into your daily work as a product person. And, and I think the best, the best people I've worked with and that I've hired do. They know the impact of their stuff all the time. So if you haven't been doing it, start now, regardless of where you're yeah, at. Yeah, literally the the thing the things that you should be reporting to your boss as well as your peers and your te- your product team on wins and losses of features you launch is the exact same numbers that go in your resume. And so so it's like a good habit as a product manager to look at what you did and the act of doing it then is exactly what you want on your resume is exactly what becomes the bullet point of, of yes, you built feature X and feature X caused Y impact. It's that extra step that makes the difference. And it's a practice you should have in general, but also just realize that like when you're not at the company anymore, they take away your access to these tools. And so it becomes infinitely harder. Like unless you got a homie still at the, at the job who will look stuff up for you, like you're going to lose out on having access to the data anyways. But more importantly, a good PM should know their numbers, which means that it should be easier for you to do it. So it's a good habit to start building, whether you are talking about the advantage of your resume or you're just talking about what is a good habit as a product manager. And it's important to note too, that if, if your boss considers your performance as delivered thing, you know, built this feature, whatever, the rest of us don't care that that's how your boss measured you, right? Like it's, I, I care, you know, from, from my point of view, how much did this matter to the business? What was the, what was the numerical outcome? What was the, the, the sort of 
directional outcome. How did this change what we thought about doing next versus what we thought before? What did we learn? All those things. And some of those are interview questions, but the number better be on the resume. And if the number is not on the resume, I assume you just don't know it or, or it's not good or you didn't care or like none of the things I assume about it being missing are good. And so if I look at a resume and there are no numbers on it, it's almost certainly not going to get through my filter. Depending on the experience, you know, that the person has and the level of seniority of what they're applying for, it results. This is a results role. And if you can't list them to me on paper, then I assume you just didn't make any, like you didn't make a difference. And keep in mind, like, you know, I've coached, I've coached a lot of PMs who, who kind of struggle with this and help them turn it around. And like the thing you need to realize is even if you're not measuring, like the other departments you work with probably are. So like, especially in Willis's world, it's, you know, a lot of it is e-commerce kind of stuff where like you live and die by conversion. In my world of SaaS and B2B, like you live and die by, you know, subscriptions, renewals, expansions. And guess what? If you launch it, if you launch a feature, sales and marketing knows whether it helped move the needle. Like they're going to be paying attention. And if you launched a feature and you feel pretty good about it, but it turns out it's missing half the things sales told you that they had to have in order to be able to close deals, like it's going to affect their close rate. And they're going to know that. So even if you don't know your numbers, other people will know them and it may affect your relationship with those teams. When on the flip side, if you do start to deliver results and you do care about the numbers and if a number isn't quite what it should be, you work at it until it is, like that's going to build you a lot of credibility at your current job and may actually help you stay there longer. In addition to having much better resume points that then become stories because every, t- you know, when you do have a great bullet on your resume, people want to know how you got it. And, and if you can tell a great story, that is a huge, huge advantage for you in the interview process when you can say, oh yeah, I had this 75% improvement. Here's what we did. Here's Here's how we figured it out. Here's how I worked with my team to accomplish it. And here's how other, other departments were involved. That kind of storytelling is also great. So those numbers are also going to attract the opportunity for you to talk about the things you do really well. Yeah, absolutely. And you're going to be, and like, if their numbers are interesting, you're going to be asked about them too. And, and even if they aren't, you know, the, you're going to get the generic questions more than likely in most interview processes where they're asking, you know, tell me about a time you tried something and it didn't work or, you know, the, the sort of, baseline questions that show up in, in everyone's process. I'll, I'll go a, another step, which is I also value like a fair amount. Uh, like I, I value brevity in, in, in a resume. If it doesn't appear that to me that you have edited, edited this thing down to be shorter than, you know, a paragraph, a bullet, I'm, I'm kind of agitated reading it again. There's some seniority involved here, right? Like an associate PM straight out of, you know, their like a, their first role as an engineer out of college or something is going to have, I'm going to give them a different filter, but the, if you want to stand out, make, make the point and make it quickly, use as few words as possible. I don't have all day to read these things. And, and frankly, I'm doing like a scan job to see if I should read it more closely. That stuff's important. You do not, maybe the bigger companies, you're going to get, you know, the, the keyword salad that you got to try and, you know, juggle, but that's the game that you got to play. But the human is going to look at it eventually and it needs to be quick. Yes. And I think adding the number often can save you a bunch of words that you need to put it, put in there. Because if you have a really great result and it's like your best win, like you can often condense that a lot more 
in a way that then lends itself to you actually want them to ask you about it. Like, you know, they're going to ask about it. And so while you do need to have some of the keywords about how you did certain things and, you know, check certain boxes on how you, how you do product management, if you have a really great number, or you have a, a, a hallmark win on your resume, you know, they're going to ask about it. And now you have the opportunity to put everything in there that you couldn't put in like one sentence or one line on your resume. Exactly. If, if it's, if it's important to the people who are interviewing you, it's going to come up, you'll be able to talk about it later. So the other thing that I want to mention about resumes is I think it's useful to think about what the person who's going to look at that resume is going to think about, right? It, if I'm in an executive role and I'm hiring somebody for my product team, now this might not have been the case where you worked before, but I'm going to look at this and when you're working here, I'm going to have an equation, literally a spreadsheet that tells me the ROI of your team. And so I want stuff that helps me understand that. And the person, you know, the, the sort of functional level of the company you work at is going to be different, but at some level that person is going to try and understand that you can give them things that help them think about your work at a higher level than you work at it. And so have that, have that in mind when you're writing it, the person you want to impress might be like the recruiter or the screener at first, but it's ultimately the hiring manager. And, and that's, that's putting numbers and results is what ultimately matters. It's the rest of it is instructive, but the results matter. Another thing I look for is I actually really like it when people write cover letters Whoa, hot take, <laughs> or, or maybe 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 it's uh, Ice Age take because it's so old, it's it's new again. Yeah, I mean, I don't I, like. I guess you probably can't call it a cover letter now. I don't, it's just like the the like the uh, the big comment box with your optional input right at the end of the submission form. Like, give me two paragraphs about why you think this is interesting. It is such a low effort thing to do. It takes. 15 minutes to, to do a little digging, show me that you've read my website, that you understand a little bit about our product, that you, that you know who I am or who the team is, or, you know, give me something that says you care and that you're interested. And not a form letter that you, you know, dear sir, I'm excited it, to yeah. work at your company. <laughs> company X would be amazing to work at. You seem cool. Please hire me. Like, like, Take take a minute to personalize. If you're if you're gonna do this, like you like you're already an outlier because so many companies don't look at this. That if someone does, their expectation is that you're gonna like take a little bit of time to think about it. Right, and I, I appreciate when people put stuff in there that really expands on something they think is unique about themselves that's on their resume. Right, if you tell me like, oh, I am, you know, we did this initiative and it, whatever, whatever, we got this result. It, that's cool. And then if I go over to the cover letter, it says, Hey, you know, like, I'm really proud of this accomplishment. We did X, Y, and Z things. It took us like nine months of work of learning and, and other things. And this is how we threaded it together. And ultimately it landed in this thing. I'm like, wow, there's like a lot into this. Like, I want to know more about how you did it already. And we haven't even gotten, you know, to the interview yet. So it's, there's, you get the opportunity to like create some interest in yourself. Again, like you said, a lot of places don't look at it, but the places that do, if you put that little bit of effort in, you've already got somebody's attention and you got them interested in talking to you. Yeah. One of the things that, again, this comes back to like what kind of company you want to work at. Like, like there are companies that would be like ruthlessly efficient where they're like, if you include a cover letter, 
Like, I think that you're from 1992. And like, I also expect you to have an AOL.com email on your resume. Then there's people who like the really, really like the personal touch. And so whether it's a cover letter or you kind of network your way to be, you know, figure out their email and send them a quick note about why you're excited about the job. There are also companies that really value that. You know, (laughs) I know early in my career, I've literally had companies where they told me basically F off. Like when I, when I tried to like network my way to the hiring manager and, and like say something about why I was really excited about the company, literally had the guy tell me this is inappropriate. Like, leave me alone. I am just trying to get through this process. You'll go through the interview process like everybody else. I've had that. And then I've had the other side where like, they love that about me and they love that I took the time and that, that I worked to stick out. And you know, in retrospect, I probably would not have gotten along with a boss who was like, leave me alone. And so it was actually doing me a favor, like think, you know, acting in a way that aligned with my values and what I thought was important was uh, a thing that naturally helped me self-select to find, find the right company. So, you know, when Willis talks about writing that personal note, yeah, maybe it means that you can apply to fewer jobs because it takes you a minute to actually research the company and figure out if you want to work there. But you know, honestly, like most of my friends, when they've looked for gigs, being very dedicated and filtering well to apply to 10, 10, maybe 10, 15 companies worked out way better than if they just sprayed and prayed to a hundred openings on Indeed for anything with the word product in the title. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, I have similar stories too, where I got weird, funny responses that told me I was, I was interviewing at the wrong place, right? This wasn't going to work for me. And, but I think, you know, people talk about like the way they run their process. I'll, I'll tell you in most cases, the jobs I've taken, especially in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, it was the only company I went really deep with in the interview process. I knew long before I got to the end that I really wanted to be there and that, that it was a good spot for me to be. Whenever I'm looking for a role, I've always said I want a Willis shaped hole, right? Like I'm trying to go see, does this place have a cutout that matches like the shape of the things I do? Because that's, that means I'm going to be successful. It means they're going to be successful. And it means we're going to be happy working together at least until the Willis shaped hole is gone. So absolutely you have to, those extra effort things that help also create extra touch points for you to figure out if it makes sense for you to be there. And, and that you should want that because being in a product role that doesn't fit you is excruciating at times. That's for sure. So I think maybe kind of wrapping up as we bring it full circle, if you're an interviewer, how can you signal what you're looking for? Like what are the, what are kind of the key touch points that get beyond, you know, following the standard that everybody else does? Like what are a few places where maybe you can inject some of that? So people know, Hey, I'm looking for a U shaped hole, but I'm not looking for, a, you know, your, your buddy shaped hole, like it's different. Like how do you convey to people what the shape of the role is beyond the, what is standard to everybody for product management? Yeah. I mean, it it, it does start with the job description, despite us joking about copying and pasting, right? Like the reasons I've copied and pasted in the past is because somebody was saying something I wanted to say, but they had already done a really good job of it. (laughs) Right. And so it starts with the job description. Like we are hiring this role to do X, right? Like if we're, we need to reduce fraud and we need somebody who knows it really well. We have, we want to improve the way our team works together. Don't put things on there that, you know, are irrelevant. Make sure you take stuff off. That doesn't, that doesn't matter. Repeat it when you get into the screens, 
the first thing I tell people is like, Hey, yeah, this role is whatever, like we're hiring somebody for X, this is what we're looking for. And that's how we start, right? Like that's the background. I need to make sure repetition helps, but also like the, the, like maybe hearing it is different or they have questions. Like what about, like, what about this makes it sound like the right role to you is like universally the first question I ask when I start, you know, a screen, by the way, wildly unpopular thing. I prefer to do my own screener interviews. (laughs) I've driven many a recruiter mad who wanted to do their own screener interviews for me that I made them do it my way. (laughs) Yeah. But, and then again, when you get into the actual interview, like you're repeating it again, Hey, we talked about this before. Here's the thing we're looking for. If by then, like somebody hasn't started to piece together that it is actually what you're looking for or that, you know, it doesn't fit for them. You're not, you're like, they're just not listening. And so repetition early and often, and just be clear with yourself before you start, you have to know, otherwise you you know, you're just hoping. Yeah, absolutely. And, and do you think then that if there's like specific, specific things you need most, like where in the interview process, should you fit some of those things in? So you mentioned the job description, obviously, but like, you know, should you be crafting questions and introducing the fact that like literally, Hey, we're hiring and like the most important thing we need someone to do is X. Like, like how would you ask about that? Or where would you fit it in from, you know, the, the initial screen call to, you know, an assignment and closing somebody like, where would you think about sprinkling in touch points that help shape, shape the role more clearly for people? Now we're getting into like process questions, which I think are, really like a personal preference thing at some level, you know, I, I, my screener, I don't, I don't mix anything into screener questions, whether I do it or, you know, someone else is doing it other than the sort of like disclaimer where I start to really mix it in is the, the second step for me is usually like a very specific skills interview. The questions I ask in this are extremely heavily influenced by Ken Norton's blog post from many years ago on bring the donuts about the interview questions you should ask a product manager. I've modified a couple of them here and there, and there's a few additions, deletions, but I, I start with that list and I change the questions I'm going to ask for the role I'm hiring for. And the, you know, so a role that is like very, like where the primary stakeholder is marketing. I'm going to ask a lot more questions about stakeholder management, communication, how you deal with prioritization, how you deal with disagreement, how you convince people of this thing or that thing. And so I'll have said, Hey, like this role is going to primarily work with marketing that like, this is the state of the issues with marketing and this role needs to accomplish X, Y, and Z in the next six months. And then the questions I'm asking should reinforce that. And, you know, and if it's fraud, I'm going to be asking like, you know, what are they, like, when's the last time they looked at, looked up the price, you know, of, I'm just making this up off the top of my head, but like, when, 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 what's the current price of a, of a credit card number with address on the dark web, right? Like, do you, how much do you actually know about fraud to actually say like that? I know you can get through there. And then like the, the skills questions that translate to that stuff in the skills interview, that's where it has to get concrete. Everything after that, like your panels, your other pieces, your process, people are going to be looking for different things. So you have to do it. And and I think this goes back to the whole thing of like starting to think about what you want to do as part of your interview process and who you're looking for before you actually need to hire them. Because this is the kind of stuff that like, especially the first time you're trying to do it, you need to think more about. And certainly it helps whether you just have the table stakes already laid out or you're actually thinking about specifically, hey, I know my next hire is going to be X, what those look like. 
you know, this isn't something you just come up with on the fly five minutes before your first screening call. Like this is something you actually need to sit down and plan out. And so that intentionality is going to help you help you in this process. And it's also going to help you be more efficient in the process because like Lois was talking about the fraud example, like, you know, if they don't know anything about fraud right now and they're going to learn from scratch, like that may be disqualifying. And if it is, that may save you a heck of a lot of candidates. So you don't have 50 candidates making it to the final interview. Instead, you only have a handful, but those handful are fantastic and great fits. Like you've actually saved you and your team hours of work simply by being a little more prepared and thinking, thinking ahead on like shaping the role specific to what you need this time. Yeah, absolutely. I also, also mentioned that I, part of this preparation for me is always sitting down with my, like my talent recruiting team before, like if they don't schedule the meeting, I will, I want an hour. We're going to talk about this role, what I need, the details about it, what I'm looking for, where I'm looking for it, why I'm looking for it. And I expect them to give me suggestions and tell me if there's a better way for anything that I'm thinking, but I come prepared and I treat them like experts in their field. And I'm arming them to help me get the people I need early so that I waste less time, right? Like this is, you cannot, hiring by shooting from the hip is, is I think a, a terrible way to uh, allocate your calendar. <laughs> and yes. And so the more you are prepared, the like the more successful you'll be. Also, like if your job is to hire people on your team, like doing it well is like one of the primary dimensions of your job performance. You have to put time uh, into it, you know, just like anything else. And if you do it well, your life will magically get easier as you go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, think about if you hire the wrong person and they're not really a good fit, like especially in product, the damage you do, you can burn out and frustrate engineers and designers. You can build the wrong stuff for six months. By the time you go through a pip with that person and then move on from them, now you got to restart the hiring process again. And so it's like, the expense of slacking on interviewing, the long-term costs are enormous. And so a little bit of preparation up front, you know, like Abraham Lincoln talks about, like, if I had to cut down a tree, I'd spend five hours sharpening, you know, before one hour cutting down the tree. It's like, well, you have to appreciate the fact that if you're, you're sharpening it that well, like you're probably also thinking about like cutting the right tree down and like having a good plan on how you're going to do that. Like that, that ounce of press preparation is worth a pound of cure. We're going to get all the founding fathers and stuff into this episode. But like the point, the point is like your preparation and thinking ahead is actually super important. And as well as said, like if you're a mid-level to senior leader, like hiring is a big part of your job and you should treat it with the respect that you need there because all your other outcomes get better if you get really good at hiring. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like on the note of respect, I'll just also say that it's a it's tough being on the other side of these roles, right? Especially if you really want to be in product or you're trying to advance your career. Like, I don't know. I think the candidates can tell when you're prepared and when you are. Oh yeah, they absolutely can. And and, and, and it changes uh, how they feel. And like from the outset, and there are people like I didn't hire that I still like talk with a lot because I think they respected what we brought to the process. And while it didn't work out there, I was like, this person's got you know they've got something. It's worth it's worth putting some time into this, and so it's I don't know. There's the the number of benefits you get from doing the stuff right up front and really investing in it are enormous. It's if you wouldn't do a presentation to you know your senior executives without preparing, uh, I don't think you should do one to your candidate pool either. And so I think then on the flip side, real quick, you know if you're trying to understand what your shape is, so you make sure you go to a company that has a U-shaped hole, so to speak. You know, we've already talked about 
you know, look at your resume and make sure your resume reflects that shape. I think it's also worth meditating on like, what are the parts of product management you enjoy? Like, I know for me, I love talking to customers. It's like, it's like crack for me. Like the insights you get from them, the way you understand the problems and just delighting them by like solving their issues that bother them and like building a product that's really great for them to use. Like that's literally my favorite part of my job. If I don't get to do that, I know I won't be happy somewhere. And so like taking the time to think about the flavor of product management and the parts of your job you really like and the parts you don't are really good. Like don't, if you kind of don't really like dealing with salespeople, like don't go to an enterprise sales driven culture. Like you want to know what that is. And so like taking the time to meditate on that, adapting your resume. Is there anything else you would add Willis that like an interview E can do to both advertise what kind of puzzle piece they are, but also find out if the company has that shape, shape hole in their process. Like what would you recommend they do? I'll add on to what you said about the, the like if you don't like, if you really dislike interacting with the sales team, like be introspective about why, right? Is this the only role you've had where you've had to interact with the sales team? Maybe it's the sales team. Maybe it, maybe it's you, you don't know, you know, find, find a scenario, like be honest with yourself the way you'd be honest with the decisions you make on your day-to-day, you know, on a day-to-day basis in your role. Do you have good information? Go find better information or more information if you need it. And I think, you know, to some certain degree, this is like a coming of age problem too for a lot of us, right? But, you know, when we would talk about this in the past, we were also earlier in our careers. <laughs> yeah. And, but I, I, I really, really, really strongly recommend a little bit of some form of journaling for product people, especially ICPMs. I have had a weekly 30 minute session on my calendar for at least eight years, maybe 10 now, where I write down things I liked and didn't like about the leaders around me and the way that they like the way they executed different things. I, I go back and like think about some of those notes and it's, it's really enlightening to me about me. And so, you know, the, I, they, I don't write them with this sort of like prescient idea, but like, I just take some notes. I liked this. I didn't like this. And then when you look out and you zoom out over a period of time, it, it really helps to to inform you. And then I also vent at people a lot. You know this. <laughs> the people around you, like they like my spouse told me when I made a mistake in a job I took. And she was really clear about why and how it happened. And it, I didn't have that information in my head. Right. And so I talk to people about what I'm liking and don't and I don't like. And then they're a good mirror for me to hold myself up to and refine that shape for myself. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that journaling thing also, I think with decisions can be really powerful. You know, whether whether it's your own stuff of like, you know, I wasn't sure, but I, I did X, let's see how it turns out, or here's what I think is going to happen. I find it also helps, especially, you know, as a PM, you have a purview in a lot of other departments. And so you may see like, oh, I wouldn't have done that that way. And it can be really powerful to write down and say, hey, you know, this other person is doing X, I would have done Y, here's what I think is going to happen. And then see if you're right. Some of the best and most humbling notes of those sorts of things is when you realize like, oh, that person was actually right. I was wrong. Hmm. Why is that? Why? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because the, it's the yeah, because that's going to help you tune over time and understand like, okay, I, I should double click and find out what did this person do that I wasn't understanding? That's going to make you a better, de- you know, that basically multiplies your decision-making skills because now it's not just the decisions you actually made. You're actually seeing other people's decisions and, and like reflecting on whether they worked or not. Sometimes you're like, wow, my radar is really good. I've definitely had that where like I've seen something and been like, oh, that's good. Ugh, that's not going to work out. 
and then it doesn't and you're like okay cool my instinct was right on that but all, equally important is when you're wrong and you go oh i thought that was going to be a, a tire fire and it turns out it worked out what did i not see what did i miss that that sort of reflection really helps just as much as figuring out what you do and don't enjoy because like will said is it is it do you really not like working with sales or did you just have somebody where you and them relationally were oil and water? And it turns out that VP of sales leaves, a new VP of sales comes in and they're your best friend. You go, oh, maybe I don't hate working with sales. I just didn't like working with that person. Yeah, and, and like as many archetypes as there are for product teams, there are for sales teams as well. Like there's, you know, not everything's uniform. I, 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 love, I, I love the example you gave that, you know, being able to see other people's decisions around you as you do it over time, it can be, and you get like meaningful numbers behind these things. It can be really useful. Uh, I'll also say if you're trying to, if you're earlier in your product career, you're just trying to get better as a product person, doing it with your own stuff is like, which you mentioned is super powerful. Uh, I learned a long time ago that actually there's a probability of an individual thing being successful and like getting too excited about it. When I hit the start button on a test was like, a way to be disappointed more often than not. And that like the healthy thing for me was to say like, okay, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited to start. I'm, I'm like neutral. I don't like it's, it's Schrodinger's experiment. When I open the box, I'll be excited or disappointed. But like until then, I'm just going to let it be its thing. And we're going to gather the information. But there's all those like things that you the like opportunity if you like write stuff down and look at it to get better and improve yourself. Cool. Well, Willis, this has been an amazing conversation. Longest episode yet. Is there any other final thoughts you wanted to add specifically for either the interviewer or the interviewee? I think the biggest thing, like as an interviewer, is even if you do nothing, sit down, think ahead to what you need to do. Like, and if even if you don't do all the stuff there, but like have a rough idea of what are the levers that you could pull, write them down, understand, you know. So at least when you go through the process, you know whether you're doing a good job on each of these things or not. And, you know, that might be like a really clear job description or, you know, the screener questions are put together well or the take home. And like, at the very least, if your take home is terrible, now, you know, your take home is terrible and it's up to you to decide what to do from there. But sit down and write down, like, what are the things that make a difference in this in this thing? Do some reading, right? This is a hard skill. Like we said, if you if you read and you treat it like a skill that you can get better at, then you will improve just like most of the other things in our jobs. From the interviewee side, like be results oriented. It's the it is it's almost disappointingly like cliche to say if you didn't have an impact that you can tell me about, then you're not like I'm not I'm not that interested in you. But the the reality is is that if you're in a product role now or you're like aspiring to a product role, there are opportunities everywhere, all around you to put that together. And honestly, the people who like, I think get further faster in what they're doing, figure out that they can turn anything into an opportunity to prioritize, understand and demonstrate results. You can do it with your chores list at home. Uh, you can do it with like, you know, a multi-million dollar line of business. Fundamentally, a lot of activity is the same. So find a way to, to make a difference and record your results and tell me about it. You'll stand out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when people will probably have to do a separate episode on this one day, but you know, 
quick aside, if you're somebody who's trying to transition into product management, showing the, that you got results at your last job is one of the best ways to signal to people you might be able to get results of the new one. So, you know, if you were on customer success and you ran a little project that like cleaned up the process for how you guys responded to tickets and it saved you as a team collectively, you know, 200 hours a month, that's a number. And while that may not have involved actually physically writing code, like having an engineer write code to do something, just the act of showing that you can run a process, build consensus, and then drive an actual positive outcome is going to be a really positive signal. So don't even think that this is only limited to product management numbers. If you can have numbers for previous things on your resume before you became a PM, that's also powerful because it shows that you understand the connection between like before and after and, and driving an outcome. Yeah, hundred percent. Like it, you have to have that approach to be successful in product, one way or the other. And so, start wherever you are. Cool. Well, Willis, this has been a fantastic conversation. I hope everybody learned a few things on what they can do to improve their interviewing. We're going to load up the show notes with tons of these links so that you can go and read and start to build the skills we've talked about today. Dig into the books, dig into some of the blog posts. And if you have questions, shoot me an email. We're happy to maybe we'll do a follow up if there's more questions or we'll add them to the show notes as extra extra things if there's just a couple. So thanks for joining. And this has been the Practical Product Podcast.